I, I, I want to talk to you about a subject that's just been so on my heart um, for quite a while now. It, we're in our second week of uh, a, a short little four-week series called For Such a Time as This. This four-week series is preparing us for this fall when we kick into our remnant series and how are we a church in the margins of, of culture. Um, and so this day, this second week of this series, we're going to look at uh, this topic of finding your way out of, Christ, uh, of civilized Christianity. Finding your way out of civilized Christianity. Um, I think what often happens, a real challenge for uh, followers of Jesus is that uh, uh, we can get domesticated. Our practice of our faith can become routine, predictable, kind of civilized controllable, manageable. I think for most of us, if, if, if you've been born again in Jesus, and if you've not been born again in Jesus, I pray by day's end you will be. But I think for most of us, when that happens, there's this passion at that moment. There's this seeking of Christ with all of our heart. There's life change that transpires and excitement and all that. Just newness of the faith is just so great. Um, but then it can become a little bit routine uh, can become more of a duty than a, than a desire. And there may even be some dryness to our walk in Jesus Christ. In a recent study we did uh, at this church entitled uh, Body Life, we used the book of 1 Corinthians. There was one scripture that stood out to me, really continues to stand out to me as we did that series that I want to highlight today because it is so applicable uh, to where we're at this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, and it says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Amen? The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And last week I quoted um, from Steve Deneff, whose uh, material we're using this fall as, as a help for us, uh, when we get into the Remnant series. But he said something really insightful in his, his, uh, his messages that I, I, I've really grabbed a hold of. He said this, a measurement of a church in the margins will be the supernatural power in her, not her programs. And uh, if we're going to be relevant for such a time as we find ourselves in, then we need to begin to become people who expect God to move supernaturally we need to be people whose lives are being dramatically transformed by the Lord Jesus. We need to be full of passion. We can't be domesticated. We can't be apathetic. We can't be satisfied with a form of godliness but doesn't have any power associated with it. Because we're the followers of an untamed God, amen? And our God's extraordinary Therefore, extraordinary things should happen as a rule of thumb in our lives. This morning, I'm going to share with you a bunch of story, personal story and story of someone that really has impacted me by his testimony. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to your hearts in a way that I know I cannot speak to your hearts. Twelve years ago, I went to a leadership conference. It was entitled Catalyst. And one of the speakers there just rocked my world. His name is Erwin McManus. He is from El Salvador. And basically, he shared at this conference his life in coming to Christ and how that all transpired. He even wrote a book. It's called The Barbarian Way. 
that's a complete version of what I'm going to share with you this morning as we kind of get into some thoughts today on how to really interact with the culture that we find ourselves in. He grew up in, in, in a mixed religious background. His grandma was Catholic, and his grandpa was Buddhist. And he said his grandpa told him that when he was eight, he died and, got, and was reincarnated. So that was kind of his religious background, Catholicism and Buddhism. So he makes his way to the United States and goes to school over here. And he called himself a barbarian because he didn't really know Christian ways, which is most of our culture. Would you agree with me on that? Come on, now it is. We're in this little isolated pockets here. We think everything's like this. It is not. An interesting thing happened to him right away after his conversion. He comes over to the States. He gets converted to Jesus Christ. An interesting thing happens right after his conversion. He, he tells this story. A man comes up to him with this great, big, leather-bound King James Version Bible, Thompson Chain. I don't know if you know anything about Bibles. That's a big, honking Bible. Thick. And he said, God had told him to buy this Bible, and then at one point, God said, I will tell you who to give that Bible to, and that person's going to become a preacher. So he hands Erwin this Bible and relates his story to him, and you can already see the supernatural things happening in Erwin's life. And Erwin says, cool. He doesn't know any better. He's a barbarian. He doesn't know what's going on. He has no idea what's happening in this Christian thing. He recounts how he was a straight D student in high school. So he gets this really cool, big honking King James Bible with this, all this, you know, chain references in it. And he said, I didn't have the first idea how to use this thing. I thought you read it during the day. It's Shakespearean in its language. I don't know what it's saying. And at night, God would just tell me what it meant. He honestly thought that's how it worked because he was uncivilized and undomesticated and a barbarian. He didn't understand this thing called Christianity. Three days after his conversion, he received a phone call from his church inviting him to go to a prison to minister to the inmates. And afterwards, they would go to a football game. His first question he asked was this. Are women going on this outing? He's a barbarian. He doesn't know any better. And he asked, can I invite a girl? And the leader said, sure, why not, <laughs> you know? See, he had been going to this church for a while before he got saved. And he had asked numerous young women to go out with him, but none of them would go out with him because they said they couldn't be unequally yoked. He had no idea what that meant. He said, I kept looking for this yoke thing, couldn't figure out this yoke thing. And then he gets born again. He says, ah, you have to be a Christian to date a Christian girl. So now he said, the game is on. This guy was a barbarian. He didn't know any better. So he invites a girl to go to this prison ministry. And she says, yes, which I'm thinking she's crazy. But anyway, she said, yes. So he thought, my first date is to a prison. How cool is that? He's a barbarian. He doesn't know any better. This date was quite the experience. The inmates came marching in to the meeting room. Crew cuts, cuts in their scalps. They looked really tough. And he says, that was just the women. The men came later. He noted how the inmates sat on one side. And he said, all the Christians who look like Ken and Barbie sat on the other side. 
He said, I was in the middle not knowing where I should go. So I sat right in the middle. <laughs> He's a barbarian. He doesn't know any better. After service, they were supposed to intermix with the inmates, and they were supposed to talk, share their life, encourage the inmates. He sat across from three inmates and said, hey, listen, guys, I've only been a Christian three days. I don't know what I'm doing. And the one inmate said to him, well, tell us what's going on. And he recounts how all that was the worst question or response to that question I could have got because he didn't know what was going on. And he handed and hawed, and this one inmate just got up and went over, got some food, and kind of left, and another inmate joined their table. And he noticed that that inmate that left sat by himself and ate. And he remembers thinking this, I, I, I don't know anything about Christianity, but I know what it feels like to be lonely. And so he made his way over to that inmate who was now sitting by himself and said, do you really want to know about Jesus? And the inmate said, yes. And so he gets out his big Bible. <laughs> he says, I know that the verses they used for me were in Romans. He's thinking this to himself. Now, let's see, Romans, that sounds old, like countrymen or kings or something. I bet it's at the beginning of the Bible. And he begins to leaf through the Bible. He can't find it anywhere. And the inmate says to him, I can't read. He says, you can't? No, not a word. So he smiles and he says, okay. Opens up his Bible. Says, in Romans, it says, and he shares what was shared with him. And he leads this guy to Jesus Christ, not knowing where the book of Romans is, and this guy can't read. He's a barbarian. He doesn't know any better. No one told him that you can't do it this way. As he continued to share his testimony at that conference, he noted that he went to seminary, and he was told that Christianity doesn't work the way he was doing it. In his words, he began to experience a magnetic pull of civilized religion full of reasons why God doesn't do what God says he'll do, with explanations of why not. Hold on to some thoughts here from him for a few moments. I want to talk with you. Now, I'm not endorsing that we do things that are questionable or wrong or immoral, but here's what we have to take away from Irwin's story, and here's where I'm going to take us the rest of the morning we need to embrace a rawness of faith. We need to do that for times such as this. We need to embrace a rawness of faith where you just don't know any difference than to take Jesus at his word and expect him to do what he says he'll do. That's my takeaway from his testimony. I remember sitting there at Catalyst thinking, when I first came to Jesus, I was just like this. What God said, I just did. And there was a rawness an expectation to my faith that God would just do what God said he would do. If we're going to be effective followers of Jesus Christ in a culture far gone from God, we need to be people who just don't know any different. We just say, if God says so, it is so, and it will happen. Amen? Are you getting what I'm saying here this morning? This is the kind of follower I think that God is raising up for times such as this. We need to be a bit of a barbarian in this manner. Not so tame, not so domesticated, just a bit untamed, a bit undomesticated, because the God we serve is wild, untamed. I want to read to you now some scripture from Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to tie all this together. Verses 1 through 15. And I want to talk for just a few moments on this exchange between Jesus and those who are with him. 
they reveal to us a little bit of this wildness to the following of God. So Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15, it says this. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on for them to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist now, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now he sent a little bit of an encrypted message to John the Baptist. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least, hear this, Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever's ears, let them hear. So imprisoned John sends his disciples to Jesus saying, Are you really the one? And Jesus says to the disciples, tell John, the dead are raised from the dead, the lepers are cleansed, and all this stuff is happening. Basically, he says, the power of God is being unleashed. Tell John that is happening. And then he says, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. That was kind of an encrypted message to John the Baptist. And here's what's going on. John's wondering, why am I in prison? He's facing this terribly hard future. It doesn't look so good. See, it's one thing to follow Jesus when things are really going well. It's another thing to cling to him when things are not going that well. And John's sitting there in the loneliness of that prison saying, are you really the one? Are you really the one? Now, John should have known he's really the one. I mean, he has been in Jesus' story from the beginning when he was in his mother's womb, when he was in Elizabeth's womb, and Mary came with Jesus in her womb to visit her cousin or her relative, Elizabeth, the baby leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb, right? John the Baptist leapt for joy at the presence of Jesus Christ. Later on, when John sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the forerunner to Jesus Christ. But he's now in prison. It's not such a friendly place. And he's going, are you the one? Because violent men are going to do violent things to me. That's what it appears is going to happen to me. And Jesus is saying, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Are you hearing this? He's saying that to John. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Hang in there, John. You're called to this thing that you have to endure. Now I'm ready to give our big thought for today. This is all loosely tied together. 
But from McManus's testimony from this account in Matthew, we have to understand this big concept about being a follower of Jesus. Civilized Christianity is all about comfort. It's all about convenience and safety. And I would throw on there consumerism. Civilized Christianity is all about my comfort, my convenience, my safety, and I want to consume what I want to consume. Following after Jesus is not about comfortable, convenience, consuming, or safety. Amen? It just is not. And if we're going to be relevant to, relevant to times that we live in, we got to get it out of our heads that Christianity is about comfort and convenience and consuming and safety. It just is not. We have to begin to take God at his word. In the times we live in, what's going to speak strongly to an unbelieving world are people like you and I on fire for Jesus Christ, willing to take risks, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to be inconvenienced, willing to go out of our safety you know, zone and take some risks. It's not a time of despair. It's a different time we find ourselves in. And it's a good time because God moved when we have to be dependent upon him. And so culture may be going all over here, secular, but listen, people of God, we need to cling to Jesus tighter than ever. That needs to be our response. I am not ever one who dings organized Christianity or the church. That's not what this message is about. But I have to tell you what God needs is a bunch of wild men and wild women living out loud for Jesus Christ. That's what God is raising up for times such as these. Sometimes you hear this phrase, the safest place is in, in the center of God's will. And I always kind of go, when I hear that. If you're in the center of God's will, it's not safe. It's the best place, but there's nothing safe about it. John the Baptist was in the center of God's will, amen? He was beheaded by violent men. Paul the apostle was in the center of God's will, I would never take a, 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 a boat trip with Paul the Apostle. He was shipwrecked three times. You're pretty much assured you're going to get shipwrecked with you with Paul the Apostle. Five times, we're told, he received 40 lashes minus one. If you're with the Apostle Paul, you're going to get whipped up on a bit. He talked about how he was imprisoned, how he was endangered in the city, endangered in the wilderness. Basically, if you hung around with Paul, you're taking your life in your hands. But he was in the center of God's will. Amen? You know why he was who he was? He had met the resurrected Jesus Christ. He was never the same. And he knew no matter what he had to face, it was worth it all because of his Jesus. But it was not convenient. It was not comfortable. And definitely wasn't safe. Jesus asked those around him, what kind of man was John? He didn't dress fancy. Guess that doesn't matter that much. Can I say it? Because Jesus' fancy dresses for palaces. His diet was a little different, locusts and honey. I like the honey part. The locusts, they're kind of crunchy. I don't know, they're kind of weird. His message wasn't so great. I mean, if you want to have a, you know, safe message, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a tough message. 
See, the forerunner of Jesus looked different. I came to Jesus at age 13. Immediately after that conversion in my own life, I remember I was shooting some hoops on the driveway, and my sister Lynn was out there with her friend Karen, and I began to talk to them right away about God. Didn't know what I was saying. It's almost laughable when I look back at it. But man, I was jacked up about what God was doing in my life. And I just began to share, God's so good, he's so good, he's so good. I didn't know how to put the words because I didn't have the, the Christian language yet. But I kept telling him, he's so good. And she said, what's all this God talk? What's wrong with you? I said, he's just so good. And he got a hold of my heart and, and it never changed after that. I was always a passionate follower, pretty much a zealous follower without a lot of information to start with. Then I got married and went to college, got an engineering degree, and, and got done with that uh, part of my life, and, and had a little baby girl named Elizabeth at this point, and got a job at 3M, and I felt God calling me into ministry so strongly at age 23. I just didn't know what to do with that, because I felt you know, ill-equipped to do it, didn't know how to have a marriage, didn't know how to raise kids, didn't know anything I thought was fundamental to life. So I thought, you know what, God, this doesn't seem like the time for me to pursue a seminary degree, so I'm just going to see if this call gets stronger or goes away. And so I went to 3M and worked at 3M, and, and I'm fond of saying, I went into that job saying, this is your experiment. This is a holy experiment in my life. I'm going to live out loud for you in this, this place as much as I can. And I worked there for 15 years. Eventually, I got transferred here with six years to go on that 15 years. I got transferred here to Brookings, South Dakota. And I remember talking to Scott Hodges, our realtor who sold us, uh, well, the house stuff for us. Where's a good church in town? Brookings Westland. That was the name of this church back then. And I said, well, we'll try it out. We ended up coming here. I really liked coming here. I love the people. love the preaching. Um, about a year into our experience here, I went in to see Pastor Tim Purcell, who was now pastoring the church, and I said, okay. Because at that point, it had been about 12 years, 11 years, whatever it is. I can't get rid of this thing off my back. I, I thought it would go away, but the strong, it's just, he's been stronger. This call of God on my life. What do I do with this? Tim prayed for me. He jumped right around that desk and grabbed me and began to pray for me. And then he gave me a huge hug, which Tim hugs huge. And so that was really uncomfortable for me. Um, and he said, why don't you go to IWU? They got this great distance learning program. You can begin to pursue your dream this way, maybe, or God's dream for your life. And I said, okay, I'll try this out. I don't know. So I began to take classes. And for four years, I took classes wondering, is this worth it? See, following God doesn't make sense at times. It's not comfortable. It's not convenient. It's not safe. I took all these classes. Four years into this, I had about a year left to go. I had to do my internship, basically, is all. I'll take about one more class. Tim came to me one day and said, we want to hire you as our discipleship pastor. And I said, oh, Okay, and we started to have some interesting conversations at home. Because now at this point at 3M, I was a plant engineering manager. I had a good job. It was safe, it was comfortable, and it was convenient. And I thought, I'm going to leave all that and be an assistant at a church? This doesn't make sense. It seems like craziness to me. And I talked to other Midwestern people, but Midwestern people like you all are so nice. You're not going to say to me, you're being an idiot. What are you doing? Now, if I was out on the East Coast, they would say that. But here, people go, they just smile and say, well, that sounds nice, you know. <laughs> and so we took the job, but my dear wife 
said some things. I'm not going to share most of those things because that's private between her and I. But one thing I'm going to share here that really stuck with me was she said, you know, go ahead and go do this, but just don't move us to Williston. Some of you know what that means already. And I didn't pay much attention to that. The Holy Spirit was speaking to her way before he spoke to me and preparing her heart for this upcoming adventure that we'd be on. <laughs> but I had no idea what that meant. And I said, Wilson, whatever, I just kind of, whatever. And so I get to ministry here, and a couple years into the process of being here as an assistant, we go to family camp out in Rapid City, in the, and I'm told there that Mark Gervet, the pastor of Williston, had resigned and took the uh, district superintendent job over in Michigan. And the church now was looking for a lead pastor, and several of them came to me and said, you should go and, and put your name in for that. I go, why would I do that? And then I went back and told Vicki, and then we had a real interesting conversation. And I remember saying to her, it's your fault. You brought it up. <laughs> Where is Williston? Show me a map. She showed me the map, and I began to go, oh, I think I had an anxiety attack. Because it was like way up in northwest North Dakota. I'm going, no, 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 no. God can't be calling us there. And so we prayed about it and said, if this is of God, at some point then Pastor Isaac will call me personally and tell me he wants me to go there. He was our district superintendent. Said that would never happen. That'll never happen. So fast forward to January. Pastor Tim calls me into the office. It says, just say no. I got plans for you here. Just say no. Things are going really well. I'm going, say no to what? He goes, uh, Isaac just called, and they're interested in you candidating at Williston. And I said, you got to be kidding me. No. That's my response to him. And I put my head on the corner of his desk, and I actually cried. And he goes, just say no. I said, I can't. God's in this thing. It doesn't make any sense, but we got to pursue it. I'm sure he'll let me go out. I'm sure it's just a test. I ended up going to Williston as their lead pastor. Let me give you a little flavor of what this was like. It was a bust time in the economy up there. So the things were down. It's oil country up there, northwest North Dakota, and it had busted, and it was bad. So we're moving up, a moving van. I got five of my kids. I sent my oldest daughter off to Bethany Missions College, and that was tough in itself. So now she's going off to college. We're moving the opposite direction. She's in the Twin Cities. We're moving up to northwest North Dakota, okay? And, and I get to this convenience store in Williston, and I think the clerk, I can't remember if she's talking to Vicki or me, I can't remember it, but anyway, she asked what we were doing. We said moving to Williston, and she, she said this, why would anyone do that? <laughs> that was our welcome to Williston. And I thought, oh, God, what in the world have you gotten us into here? And as we were doing all this, Vicki said, I have to look at this as permanent. That's the only way I can cope with doing this. We're going to live up here. This is going to be our home. And I remember saying to her, I think God has us here for 10 years. I don't know why I'm saying that, but I think he has us here for 10 years. It was a wonderful time in Williston. It was so good. It was incomparable to anything I've ever experienced in my life to that point. God did so many things. I saw so many lives changed. The church grew from a couple hundred to about 600 in this down time. It was just not what you think would happen. And I thought, this is incomparably good. And then guess what? At year number eight, when we're up there, the oil field starts turning around, and I go, hot diggity dog, people might want to move to Williston. I know that's a great saying, hot diggity dog. 
you know, and I thought, man, it's great. And they did. They started moving and things started kind of, kind of begin to hop. And I saw all this brightness to our future there. And then year 10, your vice chair of this church, Rick Egebrecht at the time, calls me. And he says, hey, are you interested at all in considering the lead pastor position here at this church? And I remember saying, oh, it's been 10 years. And I said to Rick, I would not even consider this, but it's been 10 years. And God told me, we'll be here for 10 years. I cannot believe this. See, God doesn't make sense at times. He's not about our comfort. He's not about our convenience. And he's surely not about our safety. And I said, well, I'll talk to you about it. But I don't know. Again, I thought, maybe this is a test. And I came here, and we candidated, and it became apparent that we're supposed to move back here. And I'm thinking, I'm leaving Williston. I put all this time and energy and all this you know, life into this place, and it's just getting good. It doesn't make sense. Move back here, and now I see what God's up to. Amen? I don't. I just want to tell you this. Following God at times just doesn't make sense. It's not comfortable. It's not convenient. At times, you'll leave everything you know and you love to follow him. He'll ask you to do things that are way beyond your comfort zone. They're going to be risky. They're going to be unsafe. There's no sure thing. That's been my experience of following God. But you know what? It's so good. It's so wonderful. It's incomparably rewarding. And now looking back over this, I can see some of what God is up to, but in the middle of it, you really can't. Listen to me now. I'm looking at a bunch of crazy people. Right? You're in love with Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you something you need to know. You are not normal. You are not meant to live a normal life. You are not meant to live a life that's convenient and comfortable and safe and consumeristic. You're meant to live a life full of risk, of dependency on Jesus Christ, that's at times just downright inconvenient. At times, you're way out of your comfort zone. At times, you think, there's no way I can do this. I'm looking at ones who Jesus says are greater because you're in God's kingdom than even John was. You have to gain a vision for what could be in your life and what God wants to do in your life. He has not given any one of us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. We need to be ones who take God at his word and act on it. I want to finish with a story. It's from the Barbarian Way. It's by Erwin McManus again. I'm going to use his name again so you know who wrote the book. But listen to what he says. A few years ago, I took my kids to a wildlife animal park near San Diego. As we rode out on a tram through the open terrain, uh, a guy pointed out the unique features of different species that we encounter. I suppose I always knew in part, but I had not come to realize how most group of animals have unique names or designations when they all dwell together. With insects, most of us know that bees are called swarms and ants are called colonies. Among ocean life, I was aware that whales are pods and fish are schools, cattle are herds, birds are flocks. If you watch The Lion King, you know that a tribe of lions is a pride. If you grew up in the country, you might know that crows are murderers, but maybe the most unnerving one is an ambush of tigers. 
But my favorite of all is a group of rhinos. You see, rhinos can run 30 miles an hour, which is pretty fast when you consider how much they weigh. They're actually faster than squirrels. Squirrels can run 26 miles an hour. And even then, who's going to really live in dread of a charging squirrel? Running at 30 miles an hour is faster uh, than a used Pinto. You guys won't know that joke unless you're older. Just one problem with this phenomenon. Rhinos can only see 31 feet in front of them. Can you imagine something that large moving in concert as a group plowing ahead at 30 miles an hour with no idea what's at 31 feet? You'd think they'd be too timid to do that. Their inability to see that far ahead would paralyze them to immobility, but with that horn pointing the way, rhinos run full force ahead without apprehension, which leads to their name. Rhinos moving together full speed are known as a crash. (laughs) Even when they're just hanging around enjoying the watershed, they're called a crash because of their potential. you got to love that. I think that's what we're supposed to be. That's what happens when we become barbarians. When we shake free of domestication and civilized religion. The church becomes a crash. We become unstoppable. We don't have to know the future. Who cares that we can only see 31 feet? We need to move together as God's people, a barbarian tribe, and become the human version of the rhino crash. The future is uncertain, but we need to move towards it with confidence. There's a future to be created, a humanity to be liberated. We need to stop wasting our time and stop being afraid of what we cannot see and do not know. We need to move forward full force because of what we do know. Now, let me put this in the right perspective before we all run out there using this rhino analogy and crash into a bunch of people. We need to be a church on fire for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be running into. We need to be followers who are crazy about Christ, focused on Christ. Even though we can't see the future, we don't know what lies out there at 31 feet, we are full steam ahead for him, trusting in our Lord. In Jesus, we don't need to have the power seats of culture to be effective. We just need to know the Lord who's effective. You need to look different. You need to act different. You need to think differently. Our culture needs to see the real deal. This is how we'll bless culture and how we'll experience a real move of God in our midst. Listen, we're not civilized religious folk here. That's not what we're about. We're not about comfort, convenience, safety, or consumerism. We're about a Lord who's resurrected, who's building a kingdom. We're about his kingdom come, his will be done. We're about following a God whose subtitle could be power. He has the power to do immeasurably more than we can even imagine or hope for. That's God we serve. Amen? My life story is not meant to be some unique life story. Erwin McManus' life story is not meant to be some unique life story. I'm looking at a bunch of people who are to have those kind of life stories. Are you with me?